Well, she was a, uh, a brunette. I guess that's what you would call her. A brunette. Uh, she was brown, but not like, uh, not like chestnut brown roasting on an open fire. She was brown, though. But not like coffee brown with two pumps of butterscotch, a drop of vanilla, and a splash of cinnamon. No, she was brown. Like that Christmas time structure with that sweet sugary icing. She was gingerbread brown. And her name, strangely enough, was Ginger. Ginger was uh, one for the great outdoors. It's where she spent the, the most of her days and the majority, the better parts of her nights. Ginger, uh, she was a lover of life and was taken in by the, the simplest of things. A cat perched on a fence or a bird on a wire or a, a simple walk in the park. Ginger was always there. Always there, like the dew at dawn or like the stars up in the night sky. She was always, always there. You know, they say a dog is a man's best friend, but a dog is a boy's best brother, sister, mother, father, all wrapped into one. And that's what Ginger was for me. Ginger was always there, like the dew at dawn, or like the stars up in the night sky. She was always there until she wasn't. I was seven years old when Ginger died. Seven years old when death broke into my world. There was no invitation, no knock at the door, no polite ring of the doorbell. I was seven years old. When death knocked on the door. And you know, I had that pang in my heart that knocked the wind out of you, punched to the gut, that cable snapped, free falling elevator feeling going on, and it was all compounded by the coinciding event of my parents' divorce. So I was seven years old when Ginger died. I was also seven years old when my parents were going through a divorce. Death and divorce, two of like the greatest faith shakers and world shakers too. Divorce, it brought new changes. New unwanted changes soaked in tears. But I could deal with it because after all, I, I realized and I knew for certain that I was loved. But death, how could I deal with it? How could I understand it? How could I wrap my mind around it and be okay with it? I felt like I was the psalmist in Psalm chapter 6 who cried out, With my tears I wet my mattress. Well, to tell you the truth, I was wetting my mattress with more than just my tears. You guys are so insensitive. I'm talking about like my dog's death and you just like laugh at me. So messed up. Well, that's better than the note, the somber note that I expected we would be starting on. But today we have a doozy. We're going to talk about crucified death today. 
crucified death. The death of death and the death of Jesus. Say that five times fast. The death of death and the death of Jesus. And what that means for our lives and also for our deaths. Today, I want to take us back to the Old Testament, to the ancient world, and I want to understand some of the perspectives and the views of death in hopes that we could better understand and even proclaim the words of Paul to the church at Corinth with great boldness as he spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death. Where is your sting? So let's stand if you're able to stand. And we'll read from our memory verse today. From Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Let's read these words aloud together. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So God, we come before you today. And we want these words to be true in our lives. We want our old selves to be crucified and with it all the fear. Lord, today as we encounter death, give us the boldness and strength to see past it, to see through it. Lord, that we would not be afraid. For you are with us. And you love us. We praise you, God. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, planned long ago, faithful and sure. That's how, Psalm, that's how Isaiah 25 opens, like a psalm, like a song of praise and thanksgiving here. Basically, God, you are awesome. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things planned long ago, faithful and sure. Isaiah 25, 2 continues, you have turned the city into rubble. These are the wonderful things that that Isaiah is talking about God doing here. You have turned the city into rubble, the fortress into a ruin, the, the fortress of foreigners into a city no more, never to be rebuilt. Let's go through with a, a quick biblical history on the go. We'll start with an individual that probably everybody knows, King Solomon. King Solomon, even in all of his wisdom and even with all of his wives, he couldn't help the nation of Israel from being split apart. After his death, there was civil war and the split. The united monarchy became the divided monarchy. And you have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Well, in 722 B.C., a big empire arose in the east called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They came in 722 B.C. and completely obliterated the northern kingdom of Israel took those conquered peoples and intermixed them with other conquered peoples from other conquered places and essentially wiped these people and their cultural heritage and their distinct identity off the map out of the books of history. Well, in 612 B.C., an even greater nation arose, 
the Babylonian Empire, and they tossed out the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But in 587 BC, they came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, completely destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, took the people into captivity, into exile in what would be modern-day Iraq, took them across the Fertile Crescent, and here they were in exile. And now, Exile is pretty much synonymous with death. Exile meant like, like you were you're pulled away like a pup dragged off by a pack of, of wolves. It essentially meant death and the culmination of your culture. But in 539, an even greater empire arose, the Persians. And Cyrus of Persia threw out the Babylonians and allowed the people of Judah to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild. And it's this great victory that Isaiah seems to be talking about here. It seems like he's relishing in this reality to come, the destruction of Babylon and the freedom of his people. But interestingly enough, the specifics are lacking. There's no mention of Babylon here. There's no specific names of cities or towns. It it simply says, You have turned the city into rubble, the fortified town into a ruin, the fortress of foreigners into a city no more, never to be rebuilt. Verses 3 through 5 says, Therefore, strong people will glorify you. The towns of tyrant nations will fear you as they taste and see the power of the Almighty God. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in distress, a hiding place from the storm, a shade from the heat. Because even in the event of such doom and gloom and destruction, even in the event of this, God is and was and always will be intimately involved. Intimately involved, especially in his care and concern for the small things, the little things, the marginalized, the the ostracized. That's God's heart. When the breath of tyrants is like a winter storm or like heat in the desert, when all the talk, talk, talk is hampering and harming, you subdue the roar of foreigners like heat shaded by a cloud. The tyrant's song falls silent. In these verses, God is honored for destroying, completely destroying and overwhelming the tyrants and their pride and their power. And here he uplifts the poor and the needy. And that's the fierce heart of God. That's the fierce heart of God. And I think that should be the fierce heart of all those who serve him. Two years ago, I had a very deep, deep, deep theological conversation with my nephew, Cooper. Uh, He was six years old at the time, very deep, conversation. And he asked me, what do you do for a job? And I said, well, I'm a a pastor. Do you know what what that is? He's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, well, what what does a pastor do? And he said, well, a pastor is supposed to uh, make things better. I'm like, whoa, you set the bar really high, bro. (laughs) You set the bar really high, but yeah, I guess so. Great answer. Pastors supposed to make things better. And, and one of the ways in which we pastors try at least to make things better is to be there in the event of death. 
to be there for you, for your family, for the people when we face death. And now, what I always find challenging is in the event of death, like when is the proper time to adopt what I would call the the newness of the past tense? You know, it's kind of strange. Like, we've always referred to this person, so-and-so, as is and are. And now we have to make this transition to this person, so-and-so, was and were. Like, when do we do that? When's the proper time? And I always, always mess it up, it seems. I always seem to get the specifics wrong about how we are to talk about them. How do I incorporate these new specifics into my speech? Well, in these first five verses, the specifics are actually very lacking here. As we peruse through these first five verses, Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, planned long ago, faithful and sure. You have turned the city into rubble. Well, what city are we talking about here? Uh, I don't know. The fortified town into a ruin, the fortress of foreigners into a city no more. What fortified town? What fortress of foreigners? It's never to be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. The towns of tyrant nations will fear you. You have been a refuge for the poor and needy in distress. Like, like, who are these people? I'm reading pretty fast, too. Are you impressed or what? When the breath of tyrant nations is like a winter storm, like the heat in the desert, you subdue the roar of foreigners. Who are these tyrants? Who are these foreigners? Who specifically are we talking about? Well, it's altogether unspecific because, as we'll see, this passage is concerned with God's activity, activity on the global scale. Sure, we're talking about the people of Judah and their adversaries, Babylon, but more, this is talking about all people in all places under the threat of tyranny and empire, because I love what Psalm 147, verse 6 says The Lord helps the poor, but throws the wicked down on the dirt. Well, death is a wicked tyrant, soon to be thrown down on the dirt, soon to be dealt with. Well, verse 6 continues here and it says, On this mountain, well, that sounds like rather specific. What mountain is being referenced here? Is this Mount Sinai, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Everest? If I were a betting man, which I'm not, uh, I would probably bet that this is Mount Zion. The Hebrew just says har, it just says mountain. So we're kind of left to figure out what mountain is this that's being talked about. Maybe Mount Zion. If you've read the Bible, you've probably come across this this phrase before, Mount Zion. Well, what does that actually mean? It could mean a number of things. It could literally mean Jerusalem or specifically a high hill on the southeastern side of the city. Or it could figuratively mean the people of God or God's kingdom or the city of the living God. Well, Whatever the case may be, on this mountain, whatever mountain it is, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of choice wines, of select foods rich in flavor, like chicken and waffles. (laughs) If you have never tasted the glory of chicken and waffles, you haven't lived yet. 
Don't worry about your arteries or anything like that, heart problems. Chicken and waffles, fried chicken with a little bit of gravy and a little bit of syrup and Belgian waffles. I think that's what, what Isaiah is talking about here in the text. We could actually translate that. The Hebrew text actually says of, of chicken and waffles, rich in flavor. Uh, no, chicken and waffles. Maybe if you're more cultured. Maybe you're like caviar and lobster. Or like creme brulee and top sirloin or something like that. But, but there's going to be a rich feast. A feast of choice wines. Of select foods rich in flavor. Of choice wines well refined. Here we have the Pinot Noir. Heavily toasted in oak. With hints of pencil shavings. And <laughs> aromas of barnyards. And petrol on the nose. Winos are weird. I'll just say it. But food and wine descriptions aside here, uh, this is God's salvation. This is God's salvation, good food and good drink. And I know those are images for joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, but I don't think heaven is going to be a place that's lacking food and, and good drink. Images of joy and satisfaction. But you know what? This is just the first course. Just the first course. Verse 7 says, He will swallow up. On this mountain, the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud and shrouding all nations. This is not that ivory tool that the bride puts over her face on her wedding day. No, this is the linen burial cloth that a body is placed in. But this veil that is veiling all peoples, this shroud that is enshrouding all nations, will be swallowed up. And more than that, Verse 8a says, he will swallow up death forever. The Hebrew word that we see used in both these lines is bala. And this verb could mean something like to engulf or consume, destroy, end, remove, ruin. So what does that mean when Isaiah is saying he will swallow up or engulf, consume, destroy, end, ruin, remove death forever? Well, I think we first actually have to understand what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah's day and age, in his particular context first. Well, we first have to understand that the Israelites were a small fish, or better yet, a small tadpole in a really big pond. A pond full of polytheistic people, people who worshipped many gods. Two big polytheistic piranhas that were engaging with the Israelite people throughout biblical history were the Canaanites and the Egyptians. They were often in contention with Israel, and their mythologies or their theologies and views on death, I think, are really eye-opening and important for us if we're able to understand the absolute shock value of what Isaiah is saying here, that God will swallow up death forever. So first, Baal and the Canaanites. Baal was one of the most widely worshipped gods in ancient Canaan. He was described as a god of fertility, weather, seasons, war, and more. Well, the other god who is involved in this particular story is the god named Mot. Mot was the ancient Canaanite god of death and the underworld. And here's how the story goes. Baal and Mott. Baal is lounging in his newly built palace, and all of a sudden he decides to let out a, a gigantic roar out of his newly built 
window. And he, he challenges Mott, the god of death and the underworld. And Mott uh, responds by entering through this newly built window of this newly built palace. And he proceeds to swallow up. He proceeds to swallow up Baal. And uh, Baal gets sent to the underworld. So what? So what does this have to do with Isaiah 25 and crucified death and all that? Well, in the Baal Mot story, death, or Mot, is the one who swallows up Baal, this lowercase g God. But in Isaiah 25, God is actually the one who swallows up death forever. So it's a complete reversal of the Baal Mott story, a complete reversal of it. So what? This comparison shows us that God is more powerful than death and any other paper mache constructions. He will swallow up death forever. Well, now on to Amut and the Egyptians. You know, I think the Egyptians were a people who lived in great fear of death. And this theology of death is quite terrifying, actually. Amut, the uh, affectionately known as devourer of the dead, eater of hearts or soul eater. She was a demoness and goddess in ancient Egyptian religion with a body that was part lion, part hippo, and part crocodile. These were the largest land, uh, I mean, man-eating animals that the ancient Egyptians knew of. If you don't think like a hippo is uh, man-eating, just like do a simple Google search. Uh, they, they will eat meat. They will eat each other, actually. And hippos each and every year, even though we love that game Hungry Hungry Hippos, they certainly are hungry hippos. Certainly are. They actually kill more people every year than lions and crocodiles combined. Crazy. Watch out. Especially on that jungle cruise. That's why they shoot, right? At the, they don't shoot at any other animals. During the, you've been on the Jungle Cruise, right? Disneyland? You know what I'm talking about. They have the same jokes for like 50, 60 years. But they're so good. I love them. But uh, any, anyways, like this Amut, this terrifying demoness goddess. And her story goes like this. Amut lived near the scales of justice in the Egyptian underworld. Maybe you've heard about this story before with, with Anubis, the god who would, would weigh the heart of a dead person against the feather of Ma'at, the goddess of truth. And if the heart were judged to be impure, Amut would immediately devour it. She would swallow it up and once she swallowed it up, the person undergoing this judgment would suffer second death. They would suffer annihilation. This heart-swallowing, second death, annihilation-inducing, part lion, part hippo, part crocodile, demoness, embodied all that the Egyptians feared. And so what? So what? Well, in the Amut story, Amut is the one who swallows up and produces the second death and this annihilation. But in Isaiah 25, God is the one who swallows up death forever. And it completely annihilates the fear of the Amut story. So what? God is more powerful than death and the fear that it injects into human life. He will swallow up death. Forever. This is what it says in verses 8b through 10. 
The Lord God will wipe tears from every face. He will remove his people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. They will say on that day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Lord's hand will indeed rest on this mountain. But how? How specifically will he swallow up death forever? Because in our lives, death sure is the swallower. It swallows up joy and happiness and hope. Goodness, it swallows up our plans, our hopes, dreams, all those things we've put so much into. You know, talking to the nurses at the NICU, they'll tell you that, man, there are some really good days and there are some really sad days too. Because after all, it is called the neonatal intensive care unit. And that means that not all the babies actually make it home to mom and dad. Man, that's a swallower of hope, of joy, of plans and dreams. Well, our little Ezekiel Fox case, he's uh, turning six weeks old tomorrow. Look at that guy. He's like a little turtle ready to eat. A little grom. Yeah. We love that guy. He's like uh, up to 5 pounds, 11 ounces. He's doing great, doing awesome. But one of, one of Zeke's uh, roomies has been there actually longer than him. She's been there for, for almost or over two months since January 15th. And man, she's this beautiful little girl. But her parents are no strangers to the NICU. They're no strangers to the NICU. They, they told me that a couple of, of years ago, they had a, a baby boy who uh, he was born at the same hospital. He was in the same NICU. He was actually at the same incubator location. And it was one of those sad days that they had at the same hospital, the same NICU, same incubator location. One of those sad days where they had to say, Goodbye. And here they are now, a couple years later, with a brand new baby girl. Same hospital, same NICU, same incubator location. I just think, how in the world do you do this? Without like losing your mind, like how how are you managing to walk through this and endure this? And they they'll be the first to tell you, well, it's because of God. And it's by his strength and his power that we can endure. And they say that, that it's all about God. This couple and their four boys at home, they're living in the reality that God will swallow up death forever. In fact, this couple and their four boys at home are already living in this reality that God has already swallowed up death Forever. But how? Second Timothy 1.10 says, Now his grace is revealed through the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality into clear focus through the good news. Ultimately, it's not military might. 
It's not political performance or any chance turn of events. But as Isaiah said back in verse 1, it's God's wonderful things planned long ago, faithful and sure. And God's wonderful things planned long ago, faithful and sure, are achieved in what Isaiah is talking about here. It's achieved through the death of death and the death of Jesus. Because the death of death and the death of Jesus means victory over death for those who believe. Those who live in victory because of the death of death and the death of Jesus have nothing to fear. Those who live in victory because of the death of death and the death of Jesus have nothing to fear because a crucified Jesus could not stay crucified. A shrouded Jesus could not stay shrouded. An entombed Jesus could not stay entombed. A dead Jesus could not stay dead. But you know who could? Is death. Death. And Jesus Christ laid death in its grave. And so it's only fitting that today we perform a funeral for death. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate the life and to honor the memory of death. It is the death of death that has brought us together and death's death that we wish to remember. We are drawn here by our common love, our common respect, and our common triumph that is over death. We have come together today to remember death and make our farewells. And we now commit death to its final resting place. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. What would it look like if we crucified our fear of death? What would our lives look like? I mean, it's dead after all. And while we may suffer that pang in the heart, that knock the wind out of you, punch to the gut, while we may suffer that cable snapping, free falling, elevator feeling, when we experience the loss of those we love, the reality is the death of death and the death of Jesus, it means victory over death for those who believe. And that victory is glorious life everlasting. It's that victory that prompted Paul, the apostle, to share a, a secret, to spill the beans. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. 
Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is your application today, and it comes straight from Scripture. How do we face death? How do we help others face death? How do we walk through the darkest valley in the shadow of death? He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. No standing up in the face of fear is ever useless. No standing up in the face of death is ever useless. No declaration of praise and honor to God in the face of our greatest adversary is ever useless. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the death of death. And God, we know that we are still affected and suffer the feeling of pain and loss and agony when we lose those that we love, but we know and we trust Jesus and the resurrection life for those who believe. And so I pray, Lord, that today, if someone wants to accept that for the first time, life instead of death, light instead of darkness, truth instead of a, a lie. But they would pray, Jesus, would you come into my life? I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, for my shame, for my wrongdoing, for my guilt, for my selfishness. But in that death, you defeated death because you rose from the grave. You rose from the grave to come into my life and be my king. I want to follow you, Lord. Holy Spirit, guide me and lead me. In the face of death, Lord, give us your strength to walk through the deepest valleys. Amen.